Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Elm City Vineyard once again. Thanks Patrick for those announcements. Uh, I'm really excited to continue on with the work that we have for nonviolence. And I want to do something a little interesting first, because there's some key terms we've been learning as a community. So we've actually had, uh, over the several course of several weeks, uh, a training uh, for some nonviolent improv that we're going to do, just to kind of show you some key terms and key vocabulary. So if I can just get my nonviolent improv team, uh, this would be helpful for us to orient. But uh, let, let's get them out. You guys, round of applause in here, round of applause in the chat. And cut the applause, because the drama begins. The first definition, a little closer, guys. The first definition is nonviolence. So remember, nonviolence, if there's violence that's going on, if I step in the way, put my body in the way, this is actually a nonviolent act, even though maybe I'm going to get a little, throw my bows out, because it turns out nonviolence is aggressive. Then there's another term we learned, negative peace. Sometimes there's a scene that might be quiet, even idyllic, a young black man just sitting on the steps, but sometimes that negative peace is exposed by violence that's all around, and it's kind of scary. That is something that we need to face and fight in nonviolence, not just situations of active violence, but negative peace. And of course, there's what we learned last week that I think might be a common phrase for us. Fight or flight. And that's it. And scene! Thank you, team. If you like that, you can, you know, reach out in the chat. I think there's going to be some more terms that we need a little bit later on. So that nonviolent improv troupe will come. Hey, maybe you want some other people in that troupe. Maybe you want to be in it. Hey, talk to Nate. He's the live stream guy around here, and maybe he can get you recruited onto that. So we're going to continue our nonviolence series, and I think those terms will actually help us for today. Thank you again, Todd and Patrick. One of the words we're going to use today is resistance. And resistance has kind of become an in vogue word lately. Whether it's public health news about how our immune systems resist infection, hopefully, or vaccines will strengthen our ability to resist infection, you know, praise God, let's hope so. Um, maybe it's not public health, but politically, how to resist whichever side you disagree with. Uh, not resisting from a line of attack, of course, but resisting a worldview uh, that will soon catapult into a reality that is. Uh, going to lead maybe to a nightmarish dystopia for about half the country, and then soon everyone, once they recognize the horrors of what has been unleashed. Is it too soon for that one? I'm not sure. Sometimes that's politically how resistance goes. Or maybe we've just been escaping the public health and the political news altogether. And we're journeying back a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, enjoying our heroes of the resistance and their fight against the mysterious First Order. Or, uh, you know, maybe more around these parts, uh, you might have seen this word resist on a, a sticker or a lawn sign, sometimes found on the mean streets of Westville or Northern Hampton or East Rock, where you believe it was in occupied territories, mostly single-family homes, cry out in one united voice, resist! Resist is a word that's been a wake-up call, a rallying cry, a siren call for awareness. It says life is not neutral. Our existence is not how somehow disconnected from others. There's something pushing against us all the time. Therefore, resist. But if we're honest, that gets tiring, like wearying, even in our souls. We wonder how to sustain a life of being against. And ask any activist that's been in the fight longer than five years, that's being a little bit generous, 
I'm fairly sure they've had maybe a kind of breakdown of sorts, a growing cancer of cynicism that's become an unwanted friend and unfortunately struggle with feelings of burnout. I mean, you can take it from me in my activist life. This is true. Even for me, I've experienced those things. And really, guys, our resistance being violent or without violence, it doesn't make that much difference for this inevitable cycle that we see in the lives of our activist friends or any action-oriented life, if I can keep it real with you. Burnout, tiredness, exhaustion. Just to be clear, the way of nonviolence in this series that we're examining together has never only been about just not being violent towards humans. That's how people, usually folks, benefit from, remember, the negative peace, the, the status quo. They turn the message of nonviolence into moral policing. That's not what we've been talking about. But instead, the way of nonviolence comes from a, how to live a whole life against negative peace, wherever it shows up, on the streets, at work, at home, and in our hearts. Godly resistance is a comprehensive way of life, and it's the only way that's sustainable for us. So how do we model godly resistance with our whole lives? The steps God lays out for us are surprising. They're difficult in ordinary and even sometimes like frustratingly annoying ways, and they're also extraordinarily costly. Let's pray before we dive in. God, would you help us be open to this way of godly resistance? Would you help us, help us to know your way, God? Anchor us, tie us together, and today, would you listen? Would you help us listen to you, God? Would you help us listen to your voice? Would you help us listen as ones who are eager to be taught by you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we know, our history of resistance, it didn't start with vaccination. It didn't start with political parties or Star Wars, I guess, and it clearly didn't start with that lawn sign. Resistance been, has been around for a while. And the people of God, already formed and forged in bondage and slavery in Egypt, they had a dramatic invitation into this life of exile. After they had established a sovereign nation, exile, it came for them. Today's sermon is going to be helped by an amazing video from an organization called The Bible Project, who somehow stole my sermon notes like weeks ago. Like, it's crazy. I'm like, wait, how did they get my sermon notes and animate them? Seriously, it felt like that. But it's actually going to be a treat for us to have uh, this video that's going to come in different uh, times in, in this message. So let's first get some background on the people of God and on exile. <laughs> In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. The Jewish people were removed from their land and taken into Babylon. A people of promise and blessing became a people of exile. 
the people of God who were commissioned by God to worship God alone, to bring blessing and to be distinct among others. Now these are the same people embedded in someone else's culture with someone else's gods, wondering where do we go and where is our God? What will they do? You heard what the narrator said. Some went with the fight option we've been talking about the past few weeks, and some went with a different kind of flight, the kind where you don't run with your feet, but you shapeshift with your words, your opinions, your practices. Sound familiar? Is there another way, though? Let's go back to the video and see. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? The first step in how to resist is quite surprising. It's not get your weapons. It's not run away in any form or fashion. It's not even start nonviolent trainings, even ones that are led by Todd and Patrick. It's this one beautiful, simple, yet wholly complex word, flourish. The prophet Jeremiah speaks these words in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. It's an ancient description of human flourishing. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Build homes, just not for others. Remember, these are people that were enslaved, that were in bondage. So just don't build a house for someone else, but live in the house yourself. Take care of the earth. Feed off the land. Start families. Be together as a family. Raise children, multiply these families into a new tribe. And yet that's just the middle of the passage. There's exile actually on either side. Exile and a call to bless even one who has exiled you in the first place. It's crazy when you look at it. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to, ba to Babylon. Build, plant. Mary, increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Flourishing with exile on either side. This is the surprising foundation of godly resistance. This verse is familiar, I think, to, to many of us because it was one of ECV's founding verses. If you weren't there in the beginning, you probably heard some kind of sermon or online posting or message that's used this verse before. You know, as a brand new church plant in 2007, this verse had been swirling around as people found themselves feeling like exile in the shadow of an elite university that many in our community who even were affiliated with this university, Yale, were growing increasingly skeptical of. Feeling like an exile in the shadow of wars that were fought supposedly to keep us safe, but sparked a wave of religious and political hatred that made the world all the more dangerous. Feeling like an exile in the shadow of a yet-to-be-popped economy that seemed too good to be true for some and horrible for others. In those shadows, a scripture from an ancient prophet 
in those shadows, a calling, in those shadows, a call to us and to our church. Flourish, but not alone. Flourish, but always serving, even those who have exiled you. What is the word from the Lord? Also, seek the peace and the prosperity to the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What if godly resistance starts with a call to flourish? What if the life of nonviolence always has had to remember the goodness of true peace, the Hebrew word shalom, that reorders and reestablishes everything in the best of ways? And then that life can fight against negative peace. It's almost as if God places this step first in a comprehensive resistance to help us remember that our life will not always be against. There will be a time when there will be nothing to be against. No more sickness. No more death. Even suffering will be no more. It seems like God is helping us remember not simply a pre-exile existence, but a time when the home of God will become the home of humanity forever. A time that is yet to come, but is even approaching right now, even now. What if our resistance started from that place of joy, of clarity, and of power? And what if we dared to serve the city around us with that level of hope? My peace is already bound up in your peace. Things like a pandemic, unfortunately, teach us that. Racism, too. Other social evils, they teach us that. So if my peace is already bound up in your peace, if God's home is already coming down to this earth anyway, then why not serve our neighbors now? This is our call. Even in exile, we are to serve and to bless. But first we must commit to practices of flourishing. Now, I know the prayer call will be later, but here's a word for someone. Some of you gave up the call to flourish, not just because you hate the folks who exiled you. I actually don't think you really do. But some of you gave up the call to flourish because you feel like it's your responsibility alone to seek peace. Your life has become making things right. But you might be forgetting who called you to right living in the first place. You might be forgetting sometimes in the urgency of it all what right even is. Do you guys mind if I just continue with the word? Some of you have been at marches, going from one corner to the next, not wanting to be anywhere else in the world in your bones. You know it's right to be there, but you literally don't know where you're going in your heart. Where will you be when this march finally ends? Where will your Uber pick you up? How long will it take for you to walk back to your car? Where are you going? There's words, I think, coming to us here. Come back. Come back to your first love, which isn't passively going to a church and forgetting your fire, by the way. It's remembering the call to flourish and living out of that place of formation. You have permission to flourish even as the world burns. That's actually the call of the church because embedded in the call to flourish has always been the call to serve, the call to bless, a call to seek the peace of a shared city, the only kind of city we have anymore. And just a little bit more, if you don't mind about that same word. 
Some of you are looking at that person next to you at the march. Remember, you're at the march in this example. <laughs> and you're, you're wondering if there could be a table between you, a place to share what brings you there, to hear why they're there at that march. But that table never materializes. You just march forward, onward, and then it ends. What if you're longing for a table, a conversation, a space to listen, to bless, and to work together? What if you have to create that table? What does flourishing really look like for us? Now, some of you are thinking, Josh clearly doesn't know my life. How could flourishing really be an option? I listened to that song last week, the just look at our lives, and I thought about my life. I was like, that's not flourishing. Josh is acting like my boss isn't giving me heat for taking a Sabbath and being perceived as less productive than others. Josh is acting like my friend isn't mocking or shading me for my choices to follow Jesus. And Josh is acting like this neighbor in my city, and certainly the neighbor in my country, isn't actually out to get me. Like, really, get me, for real. Let's bring some reality to this flourishing word, please, and soon. I hear you. I want to hear you. Flourishing is only the first step to godly resistance. A commitment to flourish strengthens our ongoing formation. It's what keeps us rooted in times of trial. And thank God, because the gods of any age can bring the heat. I actually want to go back to the video and it'll introduce our scripture for the rest of today. Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being, but in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example, Looking at Daniel, like the clothes that he wears, listening to Daniel, maybe what language he's speaking, and even hearing someone call Daniel his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, you might think, if this is what resistance is, I want no part of it. Daniel doesn't seem to wear his like burning bush necklace or his WWGD wristband. Instead, he's been recruited to serve the king, the foreign king. And as you can see in this scripture here, He's been enlisted to a path of learning Babylonian language and literature while dining on the excesses of royal food and wine for three years before going to full service to life serving this king. But Daniel has a hope in his heart to flourish. And full of his faith's teaching, he chooses not to eat royal food and wine. As he, see it, he sees it as a defilement according to the ways of God, the language and formation of his heart. He's been formed a certain way by his household, his faith in God. This formation is being pushed against. So Daniel pushes back through, guess what? A nonviolent strategy. Here it is in Daniel 1.8. 
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. The official says to Daniel that his commitment to formation could bring him violence. The agent of exile objects to this plan and pushes back. Loyalty to God in a world of idols seems to almost provoke violence. It's almost when we obey, it's almost like things that kind of come out at us. And yet Daniel has a great nonviolent ask that comes from him not fleeing and not fighting, but facing the situation with God, using the strategy, remember from last week, the power of the ask. Can we do it this way? Okay, we'll do it for 10 days. We'll see how it goes. What happens? At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. God comes through again. Now, maybe some of y'all that don't like vegetables, you're like, this doesn't sound like coming through for me. But Daniel resists the oppressive culture of exile. He leans into his formation not to have royal food and wine that would defile him. And he recommits to the way of flourishing while still serving Babylon and seeking its peace. Some of us are like, wait, Josh, the first point was flourish, but the story ends with Daniel not getting more wine. I don't like and I don't get. Follow me here. Daniel's flourishing comes from practices of formation, practices of an otherworldly home that have to be remembered first and then practiced in exile. This often looks like loyalty to God and then subversion to the organizers of exile. Even like kind subversion or like loving subversion, but subversion nonetheless, not doing things the same way that others would. If we don't commit to flourish, we won't have a formation worth keeping when the heat of exile kicks in. When we flourish, we are formed. We remember in our bones, in our hearts, in our practices. Let's just make it practical, right? For example, if we take Sabbath, a day of intentional rest, pausing and celebration, and if we don't learn to enjoy it, to see it as critical to the way of the people of God who can walk, actually sometimes more like skip gleefully out of work and into our Sabbath, it will be hard for us to stay in formation when the heat of exile kicks in. We'll just work seven days. No big deal. We can worship other ways, right? Or we could remember the story and subvert the, the way of oppression and exile. Once we were enslaved, made to toil, but God rescued us. He reminded us of a healing rest he stores up for us. So now we enter his rest intentionally once a week to experience God and to be reminded of godly labor and godly rest and to be satisfied. We are not slaves, but people of Sabbath. Is it worth it to resist in order to remember that? You'll only know once you Sabbath, right? 
Flourishing and formation, they go hand in hand. And some of us have been taught the other way around, that if we do enough spiritual practices or formation like prayer or Bible reading or church going, we will become good and we'll enjoy being good, which I fear might be better than others. It turns out that's simply a religious exile of sorts. We get lost in practices, not in the God who invites us to practices as an invitation to him as an invitation to God, to knowing God. And if we only have that sort of religious lens and we can't really read the Daniel story, right? It's almost like his actions are stringent and weird and sort of empty in the face of the very real pain of exile, the very real oppression of it. Simply claiming things for Jesus doesn't work either. Saying, you know, Sabbath is dumb, so let's just work harder for Jesus. Let's spend more hours at work for Jesus. Let's exhaust myself for Jesus. That's not somehow holier. I don't think it works just to like add for Jesus to like a t-shirt or to like a mug or to like these statements of exhaustion. I don't think Jesus is like, I'm not just going to show up like there. You can slap me on something, but like I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not in that. Both the overly religious culture and the slap for Jesus onto our exhaustion culture make it harder for us to see God at work. The fact is that whether we personally want a vegetable-only diet or not, God meets Daniel God strengthens him and his crew, and he actually makes them healthier and more nourished than anyone else, flourishing amidst exile. Now, let's bring it home to you. Where do you need to be reminded of the power of formation in order to step into formation even in exile, to step into flourishing even in exile? Another way of asking that is, where do you drift into the way of Babylon? Where is Babylon against you? This usually doesn't start with Babylon asking whether you serve Jesus or not, like at gunpoint. Babylon's too prideful for that, actually. Babylon thinks it can convert you. In fact, many times we orient for some big heroic sacrifice, like we got to gear up and like brace ourselves, when most of our lives won't look like that. As far as I know, no one was pressured to put their life on the line for Jesus yesterday. And if you were, I'm sure you're going to say it in the chat, and we'll be fascinated by that and probably distracted from my teaching. Those of you who went to, on the ECV walk and talks yesterday, I know it was cold at Lake Wintergreen in West Rock, but it wasn't death. It was just cold, actually. Like, you just were a little, as my daughter would say, you were a little chilly. Well, you're, but she says it all the time, guys. It's so weird. She's like, I'm chilly, Daddy. Okay, other talk. Will your bodily life be asked of you today? Maybe not. But the lure of the Babylon drift, yeah, that'll probably be real. Like even like during this stream, after you sign off, like it's real today. You might drift into Babylon as you endlessly scroll the news, looking for things to be for or against, instead of using your gift of writing to speak a word that will bring peace and will sustain the weary. You might drift into Babylon believing that your parenting or your roommate culture or the ways, your, uh, the ways of your house are more something to simply survive or maybe feel guilty about or maybe update to the trends of the day instead of spaces that can anchor you, your loved ones, and your neighbors from season to season in plenty and in lack, year after year, even generation after generation. You might drift into Babylon thinking your gifts and talents are only things to instrumentalize and monetize for survival or maybe for making wealth instead of a sacred call or a vocation to explore far outside of the realm of a job. 
And you know what stops that drift? You know what stops that Babylon drift? It's passionate practices of formation that come from a commitment to flourishing. An annual night of joy that reframes black struggle and death into a celebration that resistance is in our laughs as well as our tears. Safe outdoor activities in a pandemic like sliding on the ice of Lake Wintergreen during a walk and talk for justice. We don't just have to stay inside, but we can do something together safely to value community, even in the cold. Going to a home group because of a commitment to community on Zoom now, and thank you, Jesus, someday, hopefully, in a home where lives are shared even when the room is full of strangers. A person who somehow always mispronounces your name, no matter how many times you say it. A friend or two, of course, and then, just being real, guys, a former friend who, for some reason, chose the same home group as you. Why? Remember those days of shared space where we couldn't just leave the room immediately with, like, the leave room button? We had to stay. And sometimes, like, good things happened as we waited and prayed and worked together. That hit some of y'all. I'll just leave it there. To be honest, it's the formation of still watching our live stream more than 324 days into our pandemic. Not that I'm counting. Seriously, like, thank you for doing that. All because we have a commitment to flourishing, even when that flourishing looks like godly resistance, defiantly practicing ordinary formation, even in exile, not just avoiding the drift, but being tethered to the way. Where is God asking you, actually? And I want some of you all to do this, really do this. Where is God asking you to celebrate a small commitment of ordinary formation you've been tethered to even in a challenging last year? Again, like even watching this live stream, like, thank you. You're actually, I think God's inviting you to celebrate that. What are some small practices of formation that you can celebrate? And where is God inviting you to make a small commitment of ordinary formation that could tether you from next year even on to throughout your life, like maybe your whole life. Starting a Sabbath has been that for some of us. Doing a triad has been that for some of us. Confessing sin regularly has been that for some of us. Ordinary practices. But you know what? Things don't stay ordinary. The heat can always turn up, and our ordinary formation can become extraordinary, given the nature of exile and the violence of idolatry, the things that will want our worship and sometimes even demand our worship. When we commit to flourish, when we remain rooted in formation, when we seek peace in exile, we can always come up against violence. And by following the way of God, this will look like non-violent resistance, even unto cost, struggle, even death. We're going to explore more of that in the next two weeks, even finishing Daniel's story next week. But before we do that, let's take a breath together. God's calling us to celebrate. God's calling us to even think, how could we deepen our formation out of his commitment to flourish? This Bible Project video is good. It's really good, right? It's so good, we're going to watch one more part as the narrators remind us of the similarities of Daniel's time to the story of Jesus, moving into our own story today. Let's watch that together.
Read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right, this is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice, but they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God- Long. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. Last scene of that video is so haunting. That Times Square-like billboard is flipping back and forth between modern evils with people watching, almost discerning, like, Wayne, what, what, what's happening and what do we do? And I think this is the work of the church. This is the work of discernment in these times. Just want to share two things that have just been on my heart as things I'm discerning and then kind of... Uh, give an outro for the talk and invite kind of the next things we'll be doing together. But they've been things kind of about formation and about uh, this com commitments we've been talking about, flourishing and formation. Uh, the first thing is uh, something that some of us uh, here at ECV love. We celebrate it at Night of Joy. We celebrate kind of a particular shade of it at Night of Joy, but it's black joy. And if you've been on, like, on the Twitterverse, if you like kind of know some young people, if you're kind of hip to it a little bit, there's been a thing of, wait, we can't just focus on black lives when they're dead, but we need to focus on joy, even this particular kind of like soulful joy of black people just enjoying their lives. I mean, I love to see this picture of MLK just laughing. How many times have we seen like the steely resolve? How many times have we just seen this kind of uh, the man who went to the mountaintop and then got assassinated? But do we see the friend? Did we see the husband? Did we see the father? Even this picture of Malcolm X and King just laughing together. The history books don't really teach that story of just black men, black freedom fighters, like being together. 
what does it mean to have a commitment to flourish that comes out of just like some ordinary practices? Can we just have joy, right? That's been something I've, thinking, I've been thinking about is, wait, we focus so much so, so sometimes on uh, this fight and being against, but maybe for the practice of flourishing, you're going to have to kind of retrain yourself. What's something just to be thankful for? What's something that you just enjoy? And can your resistance start there? That's been a lesson for me as someone who's been trying to fight against injustice and even uh, racialize injustice, but realizing I can't lose that joy. I just can't do it. Another story I love to tell is the story of Bree Newsom. She is someone that some of you all already know who she is and what she did, but after Dylan Roof came to uh, the AME Church in South Carolina in Charleston, killed nine people, uh, for whatever reason, at that point, there was this a uh, complete debate about the Confederate flag. There was a kind of attempt to mourn the lives, but I think honestly that debate just like raged on and became even more of a, a powerful narrative as people kind of wrestled this symbol, this like kind of allegiance that people specifically in the South can just pledge all the time. And Bree Newsom, what she did is she climbed this pole at the uh, Capitol in South Carolina and she took off the Confederate flag reciting Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. She felt like God sent her up there to do that. She said, I'm not going to pledge allegiance anymore. My formation won't allow me to worship this anymore. I can't just have the negative piece of this flag in my city, in my state anymore. And so she defiantly did that act of nonviolent protest. You know what happened? Like a minute later when she came down, they put the flag up again. But do you know what happened later? The flag came down permanently is that action, both in South Carolina and nationwide, just sparked this conversation. Why are we pledging allegiance to this? Why are we giving our worship to this? Right? Even as a country that I don't think is always conversant in thinking about worship unto God, we kind of said, this symbol matters. It's like we're pledging allegiance to this thing. Like, this, this war is ended. Like, this side lost. But yet we're pledging allegiance to the flag. Brie Newsom said that God led her there. That reading that Psalm of Psalm 23 is an act of worship for her. I think this is a practice of formation that came up against the negative peace, and it looked like nonviolent protest on the other side. But truthfully, Black Joy, Breeze Actions, these are sites of discernment. People that said, hey, I think God is doing something here. And we have to discern together as ECV. We have to discern together as a family. We have to discern together, individually even, what God's call to flourish and even serve others looks like even people who exile us, what does service to them look like? We have to discern what our practices of formation, which ones must we keep, and which ones do we subvert, even to the point of cost or death. This is not easy work. This is the work of the church. In a pandemic, we decided to say meeting in a building is not a necessary practice of our formation, given the risk, but meeting together will be online. Outside, even when it's too hot outside. Outside, even when it's too cold outside. And we'll meet together indoors someday. But we said that's something we're willing to do, to kind of model this loyalty and subversion, even in these strange times of pandemic. We have a call to flourish, and the work of formation is before us. We are positioned to show God loyalty and live peaceably, even in some ways loyally, strangely, unto others. But again, until we must subvert, even at cost, even to death. We need God's help to do that and the help of one another to know how to do that. This is the church that's committed to flourishing. 
that's committed to formation and also committed to discern. Maybe even later this afternoon as we pray and you can pray together on Zoom. Here's some invitations. What way seeking serve others? I think a lot of us would just say that value, peace. Yes, we want it. But what ways does it actually serve other people? And how can your peace-seeking serve our shared city? Here's one very practical invitation. I've heard from some forecasters it's going to snow tonight, tomorrow. I think it's still going to snow. And if it doesn't snow tonight or tomorrow, it'll snow later. What if you said, hey, I'm going to actually commit to just a small way of peace. I'm going to take that neighbor on one side, that neighbor on the other. I'm going to take a neighbor that I know that maybe has a harder time shoveling their snow. I'm going to say, I'm going to do that for you. And what if you even tell them that? What if you would say it's because you're seeking the peace of your city? That'd be a little weird, but you can do it. I actually recommend you do it. You can even say, hey, there was a sermon. Like, I heard. Like, it encouraged me to do this. I don't know how you feel about that. But what if you decided just to do that, to serve your city, to seek the peace of your city and the shared peace that comes from living in community? It's almost like an act of defiance to say, God, it's a shoveling snow, and this one's a little easier, but I want to do this with my life. And as I shovel, I'm going to think about what else might you be calling me to do? You could do that tomorrow. Second invitation, what's a practice of formation that you treasure? Thank God for it. What's a practice of formation maybe that you want to grow in, maybe even for the first time? And ask how God will use that to keep you flourishing even in exile. You might be surprised by what you hear from God. And lastly, what's your discernment plan for flourishing? What's your discernment plan for formation in the heat of exile? When things get tough, if pressed to the fire, like in your workplace or in your home, on the streets, how do you go to God and who goes there with you? Is it an ECV or is it someone else? In what way? If you don't have that battle plan right now for like when you get pressed to the fire, like what do you do to stay rooted in formation, to stay rooted in flourishing, even in exile? I want you to get a battle plan this week. We're actually going to be doing that as part of our workshop. So if you need a space to do that, Thursday, 810 on Zoom, come. Meet us there. There's always a leave room option. You got that? Now, as we move towards response, Patrick's going to lead us into communion. We're going to have a time of worship, which again is not just musical worship, but a way to orient our lives towards the king, to say that we want to have lives of firm formation and flourishing. And in communion, we can also come to God, even for the first time, and say, yes, I want to follow you, Jesus. That's something we can do. We can say we want more of God in our lives. And if that's you and that's your story and you've been maybe distant from God, you, you don't know how to get close to God, I just want to invite you, even right now in your heart, to say yes. That yes, you want to have this life of flourishing. Yes, you want to have this life of formation. Say yes today. God, I pray that you'd be with us for the rest of our time. I pray you'd help make this real in our hearts. And I pray you'd give us hope, God, even right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.